As I have mentioned often in the past, one of the most confusing aspects of the Christian life, at least for some believers, is the subject of the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament laws and ceremonies. Are we obligated to keep or obey the 613 commandments of the Old Testament? If so, how much of it are we obligated to obey? All of it? Some of it? Part of it? If we are obligated to part of it, then what part? Do we have the right to divide up the Old Testament law and ceremonies and say, well, we're under this part, but we're not under that part? For years now, I have encountered the increasingly popular belief among Christians that we are obligated to obey the precepts of the Old Covenant. It is also called the Mosaic Law or Torah. Though this belief may be prompted by good motives, such as a desire to be pleasing to God, it is inaccurate, misguided, and even harmful to the cause of Christ. If we are still under the law, then we have to be consistent and keep all of it. All 613 commandments. Galatians 3.10 and James 2.10 make it clear that the law is a unit. Therefore, it is wrong for those who try to impose some of the Mosaic Law or Torah on Christians today to pick and choose which aspects of it they, they think are still binding. The following facetious questions illustrate the error of trying to pull the Mosaic Law out of its historical, cultural, theological context and imposing it upon people who are to be living under the New Covenant. Listen to these facetious, tongue-in-cheek questions that I've used in the past to illustrate this same point. Question number one. Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from neighboring nations. A friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans but not Canadians. Can you clarify, why can't I own Canadians? Question two. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Question number three, when I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord, according to Leviticus 1.9. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? Question number four, I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states that he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I ask the police to do it? Question number five. A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, according to Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Are there degrees of abomination? Question number six. Leviticus 21.20 states that I may not approach the altar of the Lord if I have a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Question number seven. Most of my male friends get their hair trimmed 
including the hair around their temples, even though this is expressly forbidden by Leviticus 19.27. How should they die? Question number eight. I know from Leviticus 11, 6 through 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I still play football if I wear gloves? And then question number nine. My uncle has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19.19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton and polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them in accordance with Leviticus 24, 10 through 16? Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like it says in Leviticus 20, verse 14? Well, I think you get the point. Now, please understand something. I I am not in any way making fun of the law of God. It was appropriate and glorious for its time. I am simply illustrating the error of trying to pull the Mosaic law out of its historical, cultural, theological context and imposing it upon people who are to be living under the new covenant. Or to use the words of Jesus, you shouldn't try to put new cloth on an old garment and you shouldn't try to put new wine into old wineskins. Those were the illustrations Jesus used in the text to which we come this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 2, the second gospel record and the second chapter. In our continuing trek through Mark's gospel, we come this morning to verses 18 through 22. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The disciples of John... That would be the disciples of John the Baptist. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But, they, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. A number of years ago, there was an article in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle that came from Enigma, Georgia. Here is what the article said, quote, A man died after being bitten by a rattlesnake, which he had taken to church, because the Bible says believers shall take up serpents. Dewey Bruce Hale, age 40, was bitten during Sunday services at New River Free Holiness Church, and died at home late that night, the sheriff's office said. The death was ruled accidental. The sheriff's department was not called by family or the church, said Sheriff Jerry Brogdon. Nothing was reported. If he had gone to the hospital, it would have all been different. 
Witnesses said Hale took the rattlesnake to church in a box and was bitten on the hand when he took it out. Martha Hale, a cousin of the victim, said church members take the Bible literally, particularly a passage in Mark saying that one of those, one sign of those who believe in Jesus is that they shall take up serpents. Many have been bitten and were healed at the church, she said. They feel he didn't die because of the snake, but that he died because it was his time to go, end quote. I disagree. I believe he died because he failed to take into account the transitional nature of biblical truth and failed to rightly divide the word of truth. It's commendable to take the Bible literally, but it also has to be interpreted accurately. In Acts 28, Paul was bitten by a snake, but he simply shook the snake off his hand into the fire and went about his business. He didn't get any medical attention because the promise of Jesus about being immune to snake bites applied to him as an apostle during the transitional time of the book of Acts. But listen, if you get bit by a poisonous snake, you better get some medical attention or you'll probably end up like Mr. Hale. God doesn't usually make up for that kind of foolishness and ignorance. We have a responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. A failure to do so can be disastrous, even deadly, as it was for Mr. Hale. We must rightly divide the word of truth. It is imperative, beloved, that we know and understand where we are at in God's unfolding plan for the ages. If not, if we don't understand that, if we don't have clarity, we can be confused just as these disciples of John the Baptist were confused during this time when they asked Jesus this question. You see, they were caught in the transition from the Old Covenant to the new covenant. And they didn't realize that that's where they were at. And this is the same kind of thing that still happens today, which is why there can be so much confusion. For example, what many Christians do today is they pick and choose what parts of the Old Testament law they believe that are still binding today. For example, some Christians say, that we are not obligated to offer all the various temple sacrifices, but we are still obligated to keep the various feasts and festivals, and we are obligated to obey the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws. Still others would say, no, no, we don't have to offer the various temple sacrifices, and we don't have to keep the various feasts and festivals, but we are obligated to obey the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws. Still others would say, no, we don't have to offer the various temple sacrifices, and we don't have to keep the various feasts and festivals, and we aren't obligated to obey the dietary laws, but we do have to keep the Sabbath. Do you see how confusing this gets? Whenever I hear Christians proposing such views, my thought is always the same. I wonder who gave them the authority to arbitrarily divide up the Old Testament law that way to say that we are under these aspects, but we are not under those aspects. This is the confusion that results when people fail to take into account the progress of revelation. 
What do I mean by that phrase, the progress of revelation? That simply means that God disclosed or unveiled His revelation and His truth and His will for mankind as time unfolded. As a result, some of the things the Lord said at one point in time are not binding for a later time period. Let me show you an example of this in Matthew's gospel. Back up just one book to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's say you're having your devotions one day, and you run across verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 10. And before you had your devotions, you prayed, Lord, speak to me today and tell me how you want me to live. Tell me what you want me to do. So with that mindset, with that willing heart, you read in Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus saying this. Right there in the middle, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is Jesus saying here? He is saying that the gospel is only to be preached to Jewish people. No Gentiles. So does this apply to us today? Don't share the gospel with your neighbor. Don't share the gospel with your friends. Don't share the gospel with your family members unless they are Jewish. That's what it's saying. How do we know that this doesn't apply to us today? How do we know that this was time-specific Because over in chapter 28 of Matthew's gospel, we are told that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all the nations, all the peoples. So there is obviously a change between Matthew 10 and Matthew 28. Let me show you another example. Go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. This is a part of the original creation story, the original creation account. We read in verse 29, God saying to mankind, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. This is where God stated that mankind's food would consist of vegetables, fruit, herbs, etc., but no meat. No meat. So is it God's will for everyone to be a vegetarian? No, because look at what he said in chapter 9. Just skip over a few pages to the right to chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird on the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Here is clearly a change. Man is free to eat meat for sustenance. You see, God does change 
in the way he administers his program. He doesn't change in his character. He doesn't change in his holiness or in his standard or in his demand of righteousness. But he does change the specifics of the way he works with mankind. Let me show you another example. Go back to the New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. This is a conversation Jesus had with a woman of Samaria. And as the conversation unfolded, she wanted to debate the issue of the proper place to worship. After all, she knew God had specified that worship was to take place in the temple in Jerusalem. God required that people make the journey to Jerusalem, even if they lived a long way away. But notice what Jesus said in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, and he was at the foot of Mount Gerizim when he had this conversation, so he points to Mount Gerizim in Samaria, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Here is another change. Jesus announces another change. Prior to this time, it was not acceptable to worship just anywhere you wanted to worship. You had to make the trek to Jerusalem to go up to the temple to worship if you wanted your worship to be acceptable to God. But Jesus predicted a change on that issue. A change which says it won't, it won't matter. The day is coming and now is when it doesn't really matter if you worship in Jerusalem or in Bozeman or in New York or in Frankfurt or wherever. It doesn't really matter. It's your heart. It's your spirit. Those are the issues. Let me show you another example of a change. Turn to Acts chapter 10, the very next book of the New Testament. Acts chapter 10. We'll pick up the story. This is the Apostle Peter. We'll pick it up in verse 9. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That's noon. Time beginning at 6 a.m. This is noon. It's lunchtime. Verse 10 tells us, Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. At this point in the vision, Peter objects because he had been a strict Jew who had never violated kosher laws. And he recognized, as he saw this sheet, that in it were animals that were not kosher. It would have been a violation of old covenant law for Peter to eat those things. So he objects. 
Verse 15. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. This was God's way of telling Peter that the dietary laws were abolished because they were meant to keep Jew and Gentile separate. God gave the Jewish people His law so that Israel would remain distinct and would not amalgamate with other nations. That's why the Jews had strict dietary laws and clothing laws and all of their particular peculiar customs. Luke 20, 25 and 26 says, You shall therefore distinguish between clean beasts and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God wanted Israel to remain separate and distinct from the world so they could reach the world and impact Gentile people for Yahweh, the God of Israel. That was then. Now, in this dispensation, there is no such thing as unclean animals or unclean people once God has declared them clean. And God has declared all animals clean. And He declares all people clean who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is about to learn that in this story as God uses him to lead a whole bunch of Gentiles to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you realize, now think with me about this, do you realize that if the dietary laws had not been set aside by this time, God would have actually been tempting Peter to sin? Think about that. That is, that is right. That is accurate. It was a sin to eat those things under the Old Covenant. So I'll say it again. If the dietary laws had not been set aside by this time, God would have actually been tempting Peter to sin. But this was not a temptation to sin because by God's design, things had changed. Peter was no longer under the restrictions of the Old Covenant dietary laws. He was now under the New Covenant, though it took him a while as a Jew, as it did many Jews, it took a while to finally get a hold of that. Now these are just a few examples that illustrate the point that if you are going to be accurate with God's Word, you have to understand that God's design is for things to change as His plan unfolds. But be careful. Be careful. You know where I'm going next. Some of the things God said have no time restraint. And that's why they are repeated throughout Scripture. Old Covenant, New Covenant. For instance, some people try to use this idea of God changing particulars in various dispensations. Some people try to use this idea to say that homosexuality is not something that is sinful today because that was just an Old Testament concept. That's not true. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. Keep going to the right, past Romans to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
And this is only one of many examples that we could point to. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't, Don't be deceived. Don't be confused about this. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That ought to make it clear that the issue of homosexuality, and that's just one issue, we could point to many others, but this issue is not merely a programmatic issue in God's mind like the dietary laws and so forth. This is a fundamental, unchanging, moral issue in the sight of God. Now, I'm not just picking on that one issue. I only use it as an illustration because it happens to be one that people try to point to a lot today to say, well, there's this change. Old Testament, it was bad. New Testament, not a problem. That isn't true. This, like many other things, is a fundamental, unchanging, moral issue in the sight of God. But not everything God has said falls into that same category as we have seen in the few examples I've given. Now, the reason why I've taken so much time to cover this subject is because it is exactly the same principle that is at the core of our text in Mark 2, where Jesus said, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Every new era in God's unfolding program has its own forms and own practices. Now let's go back to our text in Mark chapter 2 to see what Jesus had to say about this topic. Mark chapter 2. In verse 18, we read, The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. That should not surprise us. The Jewish people had added many fasts to their calendar, not ones prescribed by God, but there were many fasts in the Jewish calendar. So this is not a surprising statement. They were fasting. Then they came and said to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So what is fasting? Fasting is setting aside the eating of food because of a desire to focus on the Lord without hindrance, and it was almost always associated with sorrow or some kind of deep burden. It was almost always associated with sorrow or a burden during which the person going through the difficulty would decline food, not only decline the eating of food, but maybe even in a bigger sense, would would abstain from the time it took to prepare food. In biblical times, there were three kinds of fasting. There was one, a partial fast, where just enough food was eaten to maintain sustenance. Second, there was also a non-feasting kind of fast. This is when an individual would eat regular meals, two or three meals a day, but would not go to a feast or not go to a banquet of any kind. Food was their entertainment, and there are times when you're going through a difficulty a burden, and you just don't feel like going to any kind of celebration, feast, or a banquet. That was the second kind of fasting. A third kind of fasting was total fasting. Sometimes during a total fast, the individual would drink water 
but eat no food. So those were the three kinds of fasts practiced in Old Testament times. And whenever a person would fast, instead of preparing food and eating food, he would use the time to pray. Fasting in the Bible is associated with prayer, and specifically with prayer when you are especially burdened. Here in our text, we see that fasting is often associated uh, with mourning. So burden, grief, mourning, etc. It's interesting to note that the Bible never commands us to fast. Some Christians find that surprising. The Bible never commands us to fast. The Jewish people were commanded to fast at only one point during the year, and that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the fall of the year. They were commanded to fast that day. But as I mentioned, they had added many other fasts to their calendar, and that's what prompted this question to Jesus. The disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees wanted to know why the disciples of Jesus never fasted. Why? Jesus answers, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. This is why the disciples of Jesus never fasted. As I've mentioned, fasting was almost always associated with mourning, grief, burden. So why would the disciples of Jesus be mourning when Jesus was with them? They would have no need for mourning, grief, sorrow. Jesus is with them. So do you see what is going on here? The group asking this question failed to recognize, now this is not being critical, it's just analyzing what is going on, that they failed to recognize what era they were in or what time frame they were in. Fasting wasn't appropriate during the time when the disciples of Jesus had the privilege of being with him. Fasting and mourning would have been out of place. Fasting and mourning and being with Jesus don't go together. They don't fit. Instead of fasting and mourning, the disciples were experiencing joy and gladness and wonder and awe and immense privilege as every day they got to see the Son of God move and work and speak. But Jesus explained in his answer here that when he would have to leave them, the day would come when they would experience sorrow and mourning and fasting. Jesus relayed this fact by using the illustration of a wedding party. He said, when the bridegroom is present, his friends are happy. When he has to leave, they are sad. In the same way, while Jesus was present with his disciples, they were filled with gladness. Therefore, fasting and mourning would have been out of place. This prompted Jesus to illustrate what it is like when we fail to understand and recognize where we are at in God's unfolding program. He illustrates the problem here. Verse 21. <clears throat> he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. 
If you have ever had the experience of patching clothing, then you immediately understand this analogy that Jesus is using. New, unshrunk cloth doesn't work as a patch on old material. So what is the point Jesus is making? He is explaining the disconnect when people try to put the old forms and practices into the setting of the new era in God's unfolding program. These people were in a new era. They didn't realize it, but they were in a new era. The Messiah was present with them. He was there. Yet they were trying to carry out all the old forms and practices, even though they didn't really fit with what God was doing at the present time. Jesus was basically saying this. He is no mere patch to Judaism. That was the mistake they were making. Jesus was no mere patch to Judaism. He and his ways were, to keep his illustration, were a new garment. This was something new. To further reinforce the point, Jesus uses another illustration. Verse 22. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now this is an illustration or analogy that we maybe would not immediately get the point of in our culture. But here's what what Jesus is referring to. When wine was put into wineskins, the fermentation would build up pressure and stretch the wineskin. But once the wineskin had been stretched, you couldn't use it again with new wine because it no longer had the capacity to stretch further. Therefore, the wineskin would break and spill out all the wine. Anyone in that culture would have immediately understood this analogy, especially if they had made that mistake and lost some of their precious fruit of the vine. So if you wanted to make sure you didn't lose your wine and your wineskin, you only put new wine in new wineskins. The point of this illustration here in verse 22 is the exact same point as the illustration in verse 21. The disciples of John the Baptist needed to understand that they were transitioning into the new covenant era. We know that's what Jesus is referring to because he just used the illustration of the bridegroom being taken away. That is a reference to the death of Jesus and his departure when he would be taken away from his disciples. And it was at the death of Jesus that the new covenant was inaugurated or instituted. On the night before his death, Jesus held up the cup as he was celebrating Passover with his disciples. He held up the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Jesus was telling his disciples on that night that the the shedding of his blood the very next day would fully ratify the new covenant. It would inaugurate and institute the new covenant. But this transition, beloved, this this transition was extremely difficult to make for the Jewish believers of the first century. And let's not be hard on them. Don't be critical of them. Their lives, think about this, their lives had revolved around the Mosaic or Old Covenant. That was life to them. 
So it was difficult for them, understandably so, it was difficult for them to let go of the old ceremonial forms to experience what God had for them in the new covenant. Very, very difficult. And as I mentioned back at the beginning of the message, this is still a problem for some Christians today. They want to hold on to the old mosaic ceremonial forms and mix them into the Christian life, but the two don't go together. Now, it, it, it would be far more understandable for a Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus today to have this struggle. If his whole life revolved around kosher laws and all that, it would be totally understandable. But what is bizarre is that Gentiles sometimes try to mix the two. Gentiles try to go back and pull the old covenant mosaic law into the Christian life today. That's like trying to patch an old garment with a new piece of cloth, Jesus said. Or like putting new wine into old wineskins. What you get when you do that is an undesirable result. So this passage reminds us that we, na- that we must take scriptural texts in their historical time frame, whether that is past or future. You see, not only is it possible for us to try to hold on to passages from the past that don't really pertain to us, it is also possible to try to make future passages fit into our present era. Let me give an illustration of this one, because I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this one. This is the same kind of thing people do with the sheep and goat judgment described by Jesus in Matthew 25. They make the mistake of taking it out of its future time frame. Jesus specifically says that that particular judgment, sheep and goat judgment, will involve those who are living at the time of his second coming, immediately following the tribulation period, that will involve a time of horrendous persecution of Jewish people. So keep that in mind. The people being judged at the sheep and goat judgment were people who had just been living in a time involving horrendous persecution of Jewish people. And that is why Jesus will tell them that by doing things for his Jewish brethren, they were doing those things for him. Or not doing those things for the Jewish brethren was the same as not doing them for him. And that is also why Jesus can base their salvation on those activities Because only those who truly believe in Jesus will be willing to risk their lives by ministering to the Jewish people in that time frame. So Jesus will say to them, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I don't know how many times I have heard that passage used to try to get Christians to feed the poor and visit the sick and be involved in prison ministry. Now, Christians ought to feed the poor and visit the sick and be involved in prison ministry as God gives opportunity. But, beloved, that's not the point of that passage. That is not the point of that passage. If you try to make that the point of that passage— then you have to say that people can earn their way into the kingdom by feeding the poor, visiting the sick, and being involved in prison ministry. 
After all, Jesus said, come, come, inherit the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. You did those things, come into the kingdom. So is that passage teaching works salvation? Absolutely not. Not at all. But listen, at the sheep and goat judgment, a very specific judgment, a very unique judgment, at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, at the sheep and goat judgment, Jesus will be able to base the judgment on how the people alive during the tribulation related to his Jewish brethren. Because only those who truly believe in Jesus will be willing to risk their lives by ministering to the Jewish people. Thus, it will be very clear. The judgment will be easy in a sense. What did you do for my Jewish brethren? If you ministered to them, you proved you really believed in me. Come into the kingdom. If you were unwilling to, you proved that you don't belong to me. You're excluded from the kingdom. It'll be very simple, very straightforward, very basic. But that's another passage that is often pulled out of its historical time frame, not from the past, but from the future. And it's another reminder to us of the importance of rightly dividing the word of truth. Furthermore, it's a reminder to us that, beloved, we are living today. We are living in the age of the new covenant that our Lord ratified with his blood. Under this new covenant, we are told that we can experience full and complete forgiveness because of the death of Jesus that instituted the new covenant, inaugurated the new covenant. But we can't earn that forgiveness. We can't earn it through forms and rituals or ceremonies or any other way. We can only receive it through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the new covenant. That is the promise. Receive Jesus Christ by faith and you will receive forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel that we proclaim in this day. That is the good news. That is the message. If you will repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ by faith, you can have full and complete forgiveness. That's the gospel. So have you? Have you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If not, you need to do so today. While the offer of salvation is being presented, whosoever will, let him come. Come to Christ. Trust Christ. Receive Christ. And receive his forgiveness. Let's bow together as we close. You should bow your head in the couple minutes we have remaining here in our time together. Take a moment just to reflect on what you have seen from God's Word this morning. A very, very important subject. A very important topic for our responsibility to rightly divide the Word of Truth. To understand where, where we are at in God's unfolding of His revelation. We are living today in the New Covenant era. We're not living in the past under the old covenant. We're not living in the future, in the time when things will be different, such as in the tribulation kingdom. We're living now in this present era. In this present era, the new covenant era, 
The message to which we are responsible to respond is repent. Repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So I give you that message. I present to you that message. God calls on you to repent, to humble yourself before him and in simple childlike faith to receive his son and by so doing to receive his forgiveness. If you need to do that, I urge you to do so this very moment. While the offer from the Lord goes forth in this new covenant era. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning. It really is a crucial subject because if we have hearts that that want to obey you and want to please you, it's so important that we know what we're responsible for, what, what we should do and what we're not responsible for, and what things were unique to the Jewish people under the old covenant, what things will be unique in the future. But we, just, we need to know what you require of us today. So give us understanding of this important subject, insight. Help us to really grasp what, what your word teaches about this so that we know how to walk with you and how to walk in a manner worthy and pleasing to you. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone among us who has yet to respond to the gracious offer of forgiveness that comes under the new covenant. May your Holy Spirit work to draw that person, man, woman, young person, whoever it is, so that today he or she would receive Jesus Christ and thus receive your gracious forgiveness. We pray in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.